Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Chris Fussell, the president of McChrystal Group. Chris was commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Navy in 1997 and spent the next 15 years on U.S. Navy SEAL teams, leading SEAL elements in combat zones across the globe. He's a senior fellow for national security at New America, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank He's also a board member at the Naval Postgraduate School. He's the co-author of two bestsellers, Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World, and One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Harfreed. Great to be here. Appreciate you uh, having me on. So, Chris, let's begin with your background. Um, tell us about you know, how you joined the Navy SEALs, and any defining moments of your career? Well, I'll give you the short version, then we can go a bit deeper. Um, I joined the, uh, the SEAL teams in 1997, um, grew up in a family of service. My grandfather was in World War II. My father was in the Army Special Forces, the Green Berets, um, and my brother, myself, a cousin, an uncle, all served in the SEAL team. So sort of part of our legacy as a family, something I was always interested in. Um, so after college, I uh, joined the Navy uh, with the intent of going into the SEAL team. Was fortunate to uh, get selected and make it through through the training. Uh, but that was the late 90s. And so the, the pivotal moment for me, like many of my generation, was, was the transition that took place after the events of 9-11, um, which seems like yesterday, but you know, 20 years ago now. Um, and what that did was forced a change in the way we operated and the way we thought about um, the battlefield. Not, not necessarily uh, in, a, in a tactical sense. There were improvements, changes, et cetera, on how things that happened on the, on the battlefield, literally, but that's always going to happen in, in extended periods of conflict. The, the more impactful uh, transition for me personally, which is what led to where I am now as partner with Stan McChrystal inside of our consulting firm, was the, uh, the change in how the organization functioned, the way that we shared information, the way that we pushed decision-making as close to the front lines as possible um, so that we could move uh, globally. We're, the, we're this very large global task force um, so that units on the ground could move and adjust as quickly as the, the networked problems that we saw. The, the terrorist threats that we were facing were traditional in their use of violence and their uh, adherence to their ideology, there, were, there weren't really surprises there um, compared to other previous uh, threat, threats we faced. What was different was that we were in the information age and those groups could connect digitally around the world, spread information, radicalize at a distance um, and, and create a network of tens of thousands that could move with speed and decentralization as networks do, but maintain alignment on a central ideology, um, which normally had taken much longer for uh, insurgent movements who had used terrorism as, as, a, as a vehicle to, to accomplish. And so that was the change that I saw Stan McChrystal drive. He, he pivoted our task force, our global task force from a traditional structure to a much more uh, decentralized and highly agile one uh, which is what 
I've been thinking about, writing about, and, and helping other organizations implement now for nearly 20 years, counting the time in the military. So that must have been challenging because uh, the, the, the military uh, generally tends to be uh, organized top down. So here you're trying to make it more agile and more decentralized. So how, how, what, did that, what did that change look like? Yeah, the, um, it's, we get this question a lot in uh, the work we do in industry, um, oftentimes in a first discussion. Well, you know, we, we're not really uh, prone to sort of top-down military thinking. So we're, we're, we're wrestling with a, you know, someone with your background. And we'll say, well, that's good because we weren't prone to top-down military thinking either. I mean, that, what we had to do was break generations of top-down structure. And that wasn't, that doesn't mean that people that led militaries like that were evil or wrong. It worked extremely well for the majority of human history, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to centralize control, strategic resources, and intent at the very senior levels. And then I will uh, put myself into nice uh, silos, which actually serve a very good purpose. If you go back to their origin in, in industry, uh, the work of Frederick Winslow Taylor and others at the, at the transition from the artisan to the uh, artisan age to the industrial age. Um, these traditional bureaucracy that we like to complain about now serves a very important function when it comes to control, efficiency, the ability to scale, etc. And you can win in industry and you, you can win on the battlefield in a traditional sense through, through optimizing that model. Um, what oftentimes we under value is the behavior, the cultural behavior and the leadership behavior that's a knock-on from the type of system we're inside of. And so um, that was probably the hardest part for the leaders to change was recognizing, hey, as you, as you join this force, you join a specific vertical. I was in the SEAL teams, but there were other specialized units, other intelligence units, eventually coalition partners, host nation partners, all falling under one pretty org chart on paper, but with very different uh, internal cultures, high sense of tribalism, different ways of doing things on the ground, et cetera. And our leaders realize it's not enough just to change the way that these systems uh, operate, giving them new authorities, changing communication structures, et cetera. We need to also break down the divisiveness that exists between them, um, which happens in any organization as well, it happens in academia, Sometimes, maybe. I don't know. You would know better. <laughs> but people on different sides of campus, people in different parts of the building, people in different units, they develop a, a distrust for one another. Mm -hmm. And um, networks tend to have higher levels of trust because they're aligned on one single story, one single ideology, one single narrative. Um, they don't need to know each other. They know that you believe in this cause as much as I do. So we're going to show up to the rally together, um, timely, obviously today with what's going on in the US. Um, we've never met each other, but we know we both believe deeply in this cause, which is why we ended up here. And that makes them very strong in the moment. Mm -hmm. Our leaders had to create a similar level of trust and cohesiveness between those highly effective, but very tribalized units. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess uh, in, in a corporate context, um, you would need a real sense of the mission of the company to do rally around an ideology to build that trust. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's where we will often start if we're doing projects in, in industry is trying to get an understanding of that. And so, some organizations it's strong, some it's, um, some it's more of a, you know, a saying on the wall. Um, some 
it's very scattered. They, they just haven't had to tackle that. Um, ours, uh, our, our narrative, um, because I'm a big believer in the importance of uh, the, the storytelling that makes a an organization cohesive, right? We're all sort of drawn to what's the, in, there's, there's a legacy story in the SEAL teams, for example, that a young person joining that force today um, immediately feels, uh, you know, within weeks or months, a connection with the history of that organization going back to its founding under uh, John F. Kennedy, right? Or further back to the World War II predecessors, right? And that's powerful. It makes you feel like I'm part of something bigger than my, myself. Um, small organizations, startups, often have that, right? Because you're rallying people around an idea and trying to disrupt the bigger, the bigger players. Um, but as you scale, it's easy to lose that. And so human nature draws us towards that. So it exists in pockets, exists inside your small team and exists inside your vertical. And when there's not a clear story that aligns you, you start to develop distrust. Research and development distrusts marketing because they don't understand their internal cultural narrative and there's disconnects in how they align up above that. So the alignment tends to come through metrics, quarterly updates, bonus methodology, et cetera, rather than remember, here's the overarching cause that we all believe in. Mm -hmm. Our belief system would have been ground, grounded in more traditional thinking of, you know, victory and winning and, and, you know, standard sort of battlefield stuff. And our leader said, that's not enough because you can interpret winning differently between organizations and you can hoard information so that your winning comes before Harfreet's winning, right? And we, we, we become competitive internally. Um, and they had to change that to say, we have a cultural responsibility to one another to share information, to develop levels of trust. Our uh, North Star became the idea of credibility. We need to work every day to deepen our credibility to one another across traditional silos. If we become highly credible to one another across those tribal barriers, we will win as an outcome. We, we won't put winning as the, as the obvious North Star and hope for all the other things to fall in line. Oh, that's very interesting. So, so let, let's, let's shift gears. Um, future of work has become a major strategic focus for organizations over the past year, especially with the pandemic. From your perspective, what are the most important facets of future work that organizations should focus on? Well, as a, as a, a long-term optimist, um, I, my hope is there are some lessons from this last year, what will eventually be an 18 to 24 month cycle, something like that, um, as the uh, next several months unfold. I hope some of the good that's come of this, the way we've learned to work will remain in place. It's not, it's not all good, obviously, the, the outcomes have been terrible, but uh, some of the work behavior changes have been problematic, et cetera. Uh, the isolation, the divisiveness that can happen when, when that happens inside of teams. Um, but there are some real strong points, right? The ability that the normalization of remote communication is something we as a consulting firm have been beating the drum on for a decade, right? Because it was critical um, for what happened in the military. Stan McChrystal had to take this traditionally centralized set of units where you literally got up, you went to your headquarters every day, you checked in with your leadership and your team. And then occasionally one of those teams would get detached, go do a thing and then come back very quickly. 
he had to take all of those small teams and scatter them around the world in a very short order. And so we were isolated from one another as a result of the problem, similar to what we've been through here. And so we learned very quickly to become what we referred to at the, or we were, we were given this language from our leadership uh, to become digital leaders. You have to learn to be a leader to the organization through this medium, because we may never be in the same room. You know, there were good friends that you spent years communicating with every day, looking eye to eye, just like you and I are right now, but never being physically co-located. So we were able to blend those two very quickly. Um, that's a hard behavior traditionally for a lot of organizations to adapt. This year has been an excellent forcing function, very unfortunate situation to drive that behavior shift, right? Um, which I think will have a good long-term impact. I hope it won't be, we won't be purely decentralized like we are now in three years, but I do hope we become a, more of a hybrid type structure. Um, and I think that's one of the future of work uh, potentials that we can grab from this year as, as, a, as a real learning. I also think one of the knock-on effects of communicating like this at scale, if it's me, you, and you know, the 10 sales leads from around the country, whatever, whatever it may be, there's a normalization um, in communication like this that can help us de-bias uh, institutional thinking, right? There's no more head of the table. There's no more, uh, Chris is the tallest, broadest shouldered person in the room so I can physically uh, dominate. It's a, becomes much more of a meritocracy of ideas. Um, and it makes it harder to, uh, for the alphas in the room to sort of own the space, uh, both in their tone, their body language, et cetera. And so I think a lot of the industry leaders I've, I've spoken with over the last several months, as this behavior has been been routinized and normalized that I think will knock on into the future um, as a as a really positive outcome for uh, the the biasing of an organization. It won't it won't be the the only solution, but I think it's a positive indicator that we'll take away from this year. Your book, uh, One Mission: How Leaders Build a Team of Teams, touches upon this idea of of uh, uh, communication importance of information flow across silos and functional groups. So um, obviously remote work is uh, um, uh, becoming uh, the, the norm in this environment and um, uh, it's also forcing us to communicate more frequently. Uh, but what, what are the processes that larger organizations uh, need to put in place to make this more effective? Like we, we need some structural changes, I, I would presume, right? It's not uh, uh, just because we can communicate via Zoom or um, through other means doesn't mean that we are going to be successful at communication. Yeah. Um, I don't focus a lot on, and we collectively in, in my group, well, we don't focus a lot on uh, org structure. I don't really care what your org chart is. I'm going to look at it, get a sense of how you think the business functions. And then I'm going to try to understand how it really functions, which is different than what's on, on paper. Um, but to your point, um, there have to be changes around process, how you coordinate, share information, make decisions, et cetera. And so the, the, the big areas that I would uh, encourage leaders to look at, one, we already spoke about, what's the, what's the overarching narrative? Is there, a, is there a, a story inside your organization that makes people put <clears throat> the goal of the organization, which ultimately feeds to your 
your end user, your client base, whomever that may be, your students, uh, ahead of the uh, self-interest of the tribal view of one particular division. Um, that's not an easy conversation. It makes people uncomfortable, but you have to start there and try to figure that out. Um, that can then help you align against the problems you're actually trying to solve. Okay, what is our goal here? We exist to serve our student body. We exist to whatever the case may be. Um, what is that? Uh, what What are the needs of that end user of the thing we provide? What's the uh, What is the way that it operates? How does it communicate? How does it learn? How does it share information? And what can we do to keep pace with that? Right? Because what we'll often tell leaders is if things aren't working like they used to, it's not your fault necessarily. It's not that your people aren't as good as they were five years ago. It's that the world is changing and it's much faster and more complex. And so you have to learn from that environment and start to adapt your own processes in how you communicate, share information. Um, what worked for us and what we outline in, in our in our books um, at the at the very tip of the iceberg was the way we communicated. There were plenty of things that came underneath that, but we we learned from the threats we were facing. And Stan McChrystal and other senior leaders made the very deliberate decision to accelerate uh, the rate of communication. And as it sped up <clears throat> to become increasingly uh, transparent and inclusive of who was part of that. And so what that looked like in the end was a, was a system that we called the operations and intelligence update. Um, it was a daily uh, synchronization forum every 24 hours, seven days a week for years on end that included thousands of people. Eventually we'd have five, six, 7,000 people a day dialing into one single net uh, to share information, listen to conversations, hear from the senior leadership, et cetera, so that <clears throat> the leaders could reinforce the narrative. Are we, are we deepening our cre credibility to one another? Did that mission enhance our who we are as a culture? Um, they could understand real-time information going on around the world by listening to other frontline team leaders. It became a very honest, small group type conversation at massive scale. Um, now that was a very aggressive approach because our, we'd studied our problem and we knew how quickly our problem was changing, which was every 24 hours, seven days a week. So we had to match pace with that. And so to your point on the process side, we'll encourage leaders, think about what that problem looks like and then start to build very honest, honesty-based, transparent communication forums where you as senior leaders can connect with anyone inside your organization that wants to be part of that to have a dialogue, right? That is uncomfortable at first. It's a little bit rough at first, but eventually it becomes this heartbeat of the organization where people can learn as fast as the problem, problems around them are changing. That will eventually put leaders in a position where they are comfortable decentralizing more and more authorities and put your frontline folks in a position where they're willing to accept those authorities because that comes with pressure. And, and the, the rigid middle of the organization, they become comfortable as a very fluid sort of, uh, uh, rather than being a traditional bottleneck, they're able to very quickly connect the right senior leaders with the right frontline leaders and, and, and be a conduit for information flow rather than a check the box sort of a, a gatekeeper. Um, so yeah, there is, a, there is a process reorientation that has to take place. This episode is brought to you by Expertify. 
Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Experfy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.experfy.com for more information. So Team of Teams is a new organizational model in the context of the enterprise that you've conceptualized, uh, combining agility, adaptability, and cohesiveness of small teams with the power and resources of large organizations. So help us understand more about this team of teams model and how you've implemented it within enterprises. Yeah, it's a, you know, I, I would describe it as a, it's a hybrid system. Right. It's it's uh, in today's environment. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about this uh, in the future of organizations, future of work, et cetera. Is um, is technology going to I'll simplify down to what I hear a lot is is technology going to allow the more traditional organizational system to to start working again because we'll have, you know, machine learning that kind of runs the traps and that identifies the, those silos and pulls people together, et cetera? Or is that whole system been debunked and we have to figure out a way to leverage technology so that a, a truly leaderless network model can be effective uh, and not create the chaos that networks tend to create? Um, I, I would argue um, for the foreseeable future, it's a combination of the two. And so um, team of teams would, would argue um, you, where it makes sense you maintain that structure and stability. There's nothing wrong with having a CEO and her direct reports and, and silos. You have marketing, you have sales, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because those uh, history will show us when run well, there's a mass amount of efficiency and, and uh, scalability in, in a model like that. It's an easy way to run an organization uh, relative to all of the ways of running an organization. doesn't mean your life isn't going to be hard, but there's a reason that armies structure themselves like that, uh, going back to the Roman legions, right? Because one colonel or general can tell a bunch of people what to do pretty effectively. Um, but it's inefficient when it, insufficient for fighting those truly decentralized problems. Why? Because when you and I go out into the field, we see a problem, we know that problem's gonna change in the next 40 minutes or four hours we know we can't get permission up and through to the right level and back down to us to take action. And so we'll either uh, walk away from it, we'll sit and stare at the problem, wait for permission to come and watch it go, go watch the opportunity go away. Or maybe we're the occasional outlier and we'll, we'll take the opportunity anyway at, at personal risk. Um, and if it goes wrong, we get fired. If it goes well, we get promoted, but we're still those outliers that are willing to take risks that other, others aren't, right? Um, so you have to find a way for the majority of actors when they see that opportunity to be able to do the right thing in the moment without waiting for this, the, the system to tell them to go. Um, and 
knowing that if it goes wrong, we're not going to get fired. If it goes right, a lot of people would have made the same decision, right? And that comes through all the stuff we just talked about, process change, cultural change, et cetera. So in, in the end, uh, if I was drawing it on a whiteboard, I'd say you have a traditional top-down hierarchy, uh, your sort of black line bureaucratic system overlaid with a series of, you know, red line networks that are constantly in, in readjusting themselves. And if you create communications forums, like we spoke about a moment ago, those networks have a, a space in, a, in virtual time and space in today's world where they can go and redesign themselves because they're hearing from one another, listening, exchanging ideas. And they can say in the moment, I no, no, no longer need to be talking with Hapreet about this opportunity. I need to pivot over here and be talking with Kristen about this opportunity. Um, and the system says, that's fine. Do all of that rearrangement that you want, as long as it doesn't interfere with these, the, the, the role and function of the black line bureaucracy, because they do in very important things that is that are more longitudinal. They run our supply chain. They deal with our uh, major uh, channel partners, et cetera, et cetera. We don't want to confuse that because those are critical functions. So and it's simple as teams. Teams is a combination of those two based on process and cultural change. And every time we've implemented that at scale inside of organizations, we do most of our work in the sort of the global 1000 level organization, because that's the scale of company that often start, starts to feel this pressure. Uh, but we've also worked down in smaller organizations that are uh, trade in big dollars and are, have a lot of complexity on any one given uh, actor's plate at any given time. And it tends to run along those lines. Let's start by understanding who we are. Uh, we have an analytics team that will go in and spend time looking at network connectivity inside an organization. And then let's, let's look at our, our process and communication norms. Are they aligning against the problems we're trying to solve for? Uh, where it's not, we're going to help build those out. That will drive a decentralized decision-making and let's work on the culture so that uh, transparency and high levels of trust between tribes, it becomes a, a reality. And so, there's no right or wrong place to start on those. Different organizations have different strengths when it comes to those those bits and pieces. But uh, to steal the, the, the phrase, you know, all roads lead to that sort of interconnectivity between those three dynamics. Um, and uh, most organizations, uh, if they're very aggressive, can start to see real change there in a in a six to month six to nine month window. Um, and the beauty of a system like this, which was certainly truth for us in, in the counterterrorism world, once it's up and running and your, your mid-level leaders who are incentivized traditionally to be that rigid middle, once they see the, the positive output and your frontline leaders recognize that they're willing to assume those new responsibilities because they can get so much more done, then there really is sort of no, no going back to the traditional methodology because now you've influenced a generation of future leaders and it becomes embedded in, in the DNA of the organization. A segue to this, uh, you, you've talked about uh, decision-making frameworks and you use a term uh, in your book called uh, decision space authorities uh, within an organization. So can, can you elaborate on that and why is it important within an organization to do that mapping? Yeah, I, I, a lot of smaller team leaders that are listening to this will say, what I'm about to say, they'll say, well, that's kind of how I run my team, which is great because when small teams, you can communicate with real fluidity. You see each other every morning virtually or in person in a normal time. <clears throat> it's very hard to do at scale, what I'll describe. Um, 
a big system, go back to that, you know, as I said, like that's how a colonel would have run a bunch of soldiers on a battlefield. Um, they get a lot of intelligence pushed push to them. You know, in traditional conflict, they'd be looking at a map of the battlefield of Europe, whatever the case may be. And they know where their units are arrayed. They know where the next river and mountain, et cetera, is. And then they tell their junior officers, go out and tell this unit to go from here to here and hold the bridge. Tell this unit to go from here to here and take this town. And they're moving their front line forward and forward and forward. They report back to their headquarters where they need reinforcements, et cetera, et cetera. It's not easy work, but it's very coordinated. Um, so you could, if you were that front line leader, you can get that you're at A, uh, go to B and stop, right? Very, very clear guidance. What do you need to do that? Okay, go for it. But it's linear. You're very bound by in, in time and space and you're told exactly what to do. You can be agile in the moment because the, the colonel doesn't know what threats you're gonna meet along the way. You can get creative when it comes to the final problem solving, but you can't get creative when it comes to talking to the captain you know, a mile north of you. The, that's the colonel's job, right? What our leaders realized was if I limit the decision authorities I give to my units to go from A to B and stop, uh, they'll do that effectively. But the problem they're facing is interconnected. So when they get to B, they're, their touching of this node inside this network affects the entire other network at this accelerated cadence. And so the captain a mile north is now facing a different problem than the colonel can understand. So I need this captain here to be able to talk to this captain here. And I need both of them to be able to make decisions based on what they're seeing, not what I've told them to do. It has to fall underneath the arch of our, our narrative and our intent but their authorities need to be much different than they were traditionally. And so we still use this sort of uh, forward momentum type of thinking, but rather than a, you know, imagine a single line arrow from A to B, they started to describe it as this sort of wide lane arrow. I, we're, we're over here and I need you to generally go in this direction, but inside this very wide lane are all the authorities that you have at your level. Right. When you see these types of things, when you have this type of opportunity, you're allowed to make those decisions independently. And the better you get, the more authorities I'm going to push into your decision space. And so as you become more experienced, your decision space gets wider and wider and wider to the point what we experienced in the military, for sure. The best leaders, the best teams had very little they had to call back to to get permission around. There were certain strategic things that always had to sit at the highest level because if it went wrong, you know, heads of state get involved. But shy of that, they could go out from the headquarters and they would be given a certain amount of time, say for the next 24 hours until we resynchronize in our, in our ops and intel update, you can make all sorts of independent decisions. You can move assets. You can call that other captain. You can call all the captains you want. You can push information to our allied forces, et cetera. Um, now, you as a newer actor, you have decision space, but it's very narrow. I'm gonna give you three or four authorities that I trust you with, not because I don't think you're competent, you just haven't been here long enough to be able to index what you're seeing against our overarching strategy fast enough. So if I, I am necessarily slowing you down for your own good. So you can go out and do one thing, maybe make one follow on decision, and then the decisions are gonna be above your pay grade. And you're gonna to have to take a knee, slow down and call back and get, get understanding, get permission. And so in that same 24 hour cycle, you're gonna accomplish one tenth of what this other very seasoned team 
is able to do because they have all those authorities in their decision space. Now, a lot of, like I said, a lot of small teams run themselves that way and they learn from each other in real time. The difference that McChrystal put into place for us was he coupled that type of thinking with those very large and transparent communication forms. So that very experienced leader every 24 hours could come in and give a mini lecture to the whole group on how they had indexed real-time insights against the assets they had, against the strategy of the organization, et cetera. One of the main reasons that we had six, seven, 8,000 people a day dialing in to that forum was not to listen to the senior officers. It was to listen to that real-time feedback from the battlefield so that I could increase my decision space from these three basic decisions to four, to five, to seven, and eventually I can become as independent and agile as that leader that's able to do 10 times as many things as I can. Let's talk about leadership. From what you've discussed so far, uh, if I could ex extrapolate uh, the qualities of a leader, you know, obviously needs to be a good storyteller, someone who can build trust in his or her team, someone who can build distributed teams. What, what else would you add to that definition? Yeah, I think you hit you hit a lot of the important ones. Um, building of teams, storytelling, um, the ability to pull people into to dialogue. Uh, I'll, I'll go back and, and comment on those a little bit. The one overarching one that I would add is a um, there's a humility to this type of leadership. There's a it's a it's a servant leader model, right? Um, I'll often tell leaders look, the simplest thing I, way I can describe it is: imagine your org chart. You're up here. Put yourself at the middle of that, right? That's where you want to be. You want to be immersing yourself in the center of the organization as a conduit of in information flow rather than a traditional top-down director. Um, but that if you put yourself on the right cadence of communication, like what McChrystal did on a 24-hour cycle, the, the, the obvious knock-on effect of that is no one's smart enough to walk into that complex of a problem every 24 hours and be the smartest person, right? This isn't a quarterly update. This isn't a board meeting where you're gonna have the whole deck that you spent a month reviewing. This is you walking in, we used to refer to it jokingly uh, as naked leadership, because essentially it's senior leaders walking in front of thousands of people saying, what's going on? What did you do? What's happening, right? I've read the reports, but you all literally know more about this problem right now than I do. And so I need you to feed me real-time information. I will do my best to connect it to strategy and what I'm hearing at the strategic level in real time. Sometimes I'll be right, sometimes I'll be wrong. When I'm wrong, you need to point that out and, and identify the information that you have that I don't that tells me that's incorrect. And we can all learn from each other together. Um, I knew we were different as an organization and I can see when an organization that we're working with is changing when leaders are willing and almost unconsciously pivoting from what they've always been told a leader looks like, the way they need to act, the directives they need to give, the type, the tone they need to have in their voice. When that pivots to an honest dialogue, you know you're changing, right? When, when I watched our senior leaders ask questions, knowing that there's thousands of people on the line, uh, that seemed very obvious to me as a tactical leader. Like, uh, how, how many assets do we have in that part of the fight? Is that, is that helicopter 
uh, here or there. Like, how do you not know that? Well, of course they don't know it. They're running the global conflict, right? They shouldn't get mired in the tactical stuff, but they were willing to demonstrate that publicly. Um, or even deeper questions, you know, a young analyst from around the world would, would say, well, I think it, I think it looks like this, uh, which might be contradictory to something the senior leadership had just said, rather than, you know, yelling at their boss for that person saying anything or, who are you? Call me after this meeting. They would say, that's really interesting. Um, tell me more about why you think that and give us a sense of your background. Do you have more experience in that space than we do? And analyze for us the way you're thinking about this problem. And now here's this 23 year old who has this captive audience and they are explaining to all of us how to think about this specific problem. Uh, that's a very powerful pivot for an organization to make. And it's a it's a very learnable skill for a senior leader. It, it will be different leader, leader to leader. But if anything, over the last 20 years of, of studying leadership and trying to understand the best traits and practices, um, I've realized there, <laughs> there are none, right? Everyone's their own individual. The worst thing you can do uh, in, the, in the military, we sometimes call this the patent syndrome, try, try to emulate and become another leader and you will fail, right? you have to learn their strengths and weaknesses and adapt that to who you are as a person, right? So your way of drawing people out will be different than mine. Um, but the idea that you have to draw people in the, into the conversation is a truism, right? So what are those key variables that leaders have to have? Many of them, in my opinion, are tied to a servants, servant leaders mentality, right? I am here to serve the organization and drive effective communication and learning. I'm not here to demonstrate to everyone that I'm the smartest person in the room. I'm not here to boost my ego. I can, I'll do that after work when I go for a run or something. Here, we're, we, we come together to solve the problem and I have the honor of filling the role of leader, which is simply another position. That's great. The skills gap uh, uh, has been a consistent theme uh, when we think about future work. From your perspective, what are some of the important skills of the future? Um, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, and I guess we probably all have our, a bias on this. I'm by no means a, a technologist or, um, deep enough in any specific industry to offer a tactical answer. Um, but I'm old enough now where I have, you know, relatives who are, uh, kids who are 10 and 12, right on the brink of this younger relatives that are entering the professional space, um, or picking their majors in college. I was a philosophy major in, in college, right? So I'm, I'm a huge believer in um, if, you, if you can learn how to learn, you're, you're better positioned than uh, going after hard skill right out of the gates. Because I, I don't know what those necessary skills will be in 10 years. I think very few aside from deep subject matter experts in, in the industry can, can forecast that effectively. Um, but where I have seen people adapt quickly, uh, and this happened in my generation in the military, Right. As we've been talking about, the whole system shifted. The people that did the best there um, and were the most comfortable with it were the ones that had a, a legacy of learning how to learn and a, and a tireless intellectual curiosity as to why systems worked or didn't. Um, because if you become hardwired to one type of one specific skill, one specific asset or piece of technology, it's going to be gone in three or four years. Um, and so that that's the one thing that I, I really do ad, advocate for my own kids and their education and young professionals is 
become obsessed with learning and how you learn, understand that. And you'll, you'll get through a lot of the transition that lies ahead of us. Any parting words for our audience? Um, yeah, I mean, given, given what's going on in the world and uh, the last year, I would just um, offer my own reflections on, you know, having lived through and in nations that have uh, suffered greatly um, under different circumstances. Uh, there's, a, there's a resilience in humanity that we all can easily underestimate. Um, and as I said at the opening, I'm, I'm a long-term optimist because I, I believe deeply in, um, in that drive. You know, at the end of the day, having spent time in all sorts of strange corners around the world, um, the, the vast majority of people, regardless of politics, uh, ideology, et cetera, uh, want to come home to those they love, see those people go to bed safe and have a, uh, you know, a nice meal when they wake up in the morning. Um, that level of connectedness that exists uh, amongst families, amongst communities, amongst nations, et cetera, is broadly universal in my experience. Uh, and that drives a, a resilience inside of all of us to get back to what that normal will look like. It will change as a result of this year. Um, our political system is under mass disruption and change here in the US, but I st still am highly optimistic because I believe deeply in, in our desire as people to remain connected with those we love and with the community around us. And that will see us through this time as it has in, in times of previous uh, mass change and disruption. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I really enjoyed the discussion and thanks for having me.